Good morning, everybody. Let's get started. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this wonderful panel. Um, I think uh, just to give you an overview of what we're going to do today, we're going to have four presenters speak for 15 minutes and then a response uh, from our respondent. And I thought that for the sake of time, I would just go through all of the bios uh, at once in order, and then we're just going to take it away to leave plenty of room for uh, what promises to be a stimulating Q&A. So our first presenter is Ellen Handy. She's a photographic historian teaching at the City College of New York and formerly was a photography curator at the International Center of Photography in New York and the Harry Ransom Center in Austin. She's presently at work on a book called The History of Photography and Introduction. Our second presenter is Sarah Kernan, an independent scholar based in the Chicago area. She recently received her PhD in medieval history from Ohio State and is currently working on a monograph based on her dissertation research examining the production and use of cookbooks in medieval and early modern England. Most recently, she's been teaching culinary history courses for the Newbury Library's Adult Seminar Program, creating primary source modules on culinary history topics for the Newbury Library's digital collections for the classroom, and presenting gallery talks at the Cloisters in New York City. Our third presenter, Douglas Clark, is Associate Dean and Associate Professor of the College of Architecture, Planning, and Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Arlington, with degrees in architectural history from UVA and Brown. His research focuses upon how cities are documented photographically, especially stereoscopically. Publications include Traveling via Rome through the Stereoscope, Reality, Memory, and Virtual Travel, Nazi stereoscopic photobooks of Vienna and Prague, geopolitical propaganda collides with a distinctive visual medium, and stereoscopic photography encounters the staircase, traversing thresholds, borders, and passages. Tara Lyons is a newly minted associate professor of English literature at Illinois State. She's completing a book project on the organizational principles in English drama collections and building a database of dramatic works in early modern Zamalbanda. She has received grants from the Huntington, Folger, and Bodleian Libraries. Her dissertation was awarded honorable mention in the J. Leeds Barrel Dissertation Prize in 2012. Her scholarship on book history and gender and performance studies has been published or is forthcoming in Philological Quarterly and edited collections including the Blackwell Companion to Renaissance Drama and the Cambridge Companion to the First Folio. And finally, our respondent, uh, last but certainly not least, Stephen Nichols is James M. Beale Professor Emeritus of French and Humanities and Research Professor at John Hopkins, is a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Since earning his PhD at Yale in comparative literature, he has written or edited some 26 books on the Middle Ages, including Romanesque Signs, Early Medieval Narrative, and Iconography, which received the MLA's James Russell Lowell Prize for Outstanding Book of 1984. Most recently, he published From Parchment to Cyberspace, Medieval Literature in the Digital Age, 2016, and Spectral Sea, Mediterranean Palimpsest in European Culture, 2017. Nichols holds an honorary Doctor Lettres from the University of Geneva and was named an Officer of the Order of Arts and Letters by the French government. The Alexander von Humboldt Foundation awarded him its research prize in 2008 and again in 2015. Nichols co-directs John Hopkins University Digital Library of Medieval Manuscripts and co-founded the electronic journal Digital Philology published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. He chaired the board of the Council of Library Information Resources from 2008 to 2013, is a fellow of the Medieval Academy of America, and an honorary senior fellow of the School of Criticism and Theory, which he directed from 1995 to 2001. So, without further ado, let us begin with Ellen Handy's presentation.
These are the covers of the limited and trade editions of Julia Peterkin and Doris Ullman's Roll Jordan Roll, which portrays the lives of African-American Gullah people in coastal South Carolina through photographs and text. The limited edition was produced with 90 richly printed photogravure plates. The trade edition's illustrations were offset printing. By the 20th century, photogravure was associated with artistically ambitious books. It translates photographic positives to etched metal plates, which print the images in ink with a press, rather than in a darkroom. Although photogravure could be considered a means of reproduction, it is usually presented as a fine art print medium for deluxe publications. It played a prominent role in the international pictorial movement's crusade for photography's inclusion among the fine arts. Pictorialism's rejection of the applied documentary functions of the medium was embodied in its soft focus, which accentuated the medium's resemblance to the other graphic arts and paired well with photogravure. The style reached its apogee in Camera Work magazine, which incorporated fine photogravure plates. Pictorialism was also disseminated by the Clarence White School of Photography, where Ullman studied. Ullman combined that artful indirection of pictorialism and velvety ink of gravure in documentation of an African-American rural community. Anthropological photography normally emphasizes the medium's specificity, its indexical relation to reality, and relies upon focal acuity to capture maximal visual information about its subjects. Nevertheless, some photographers' anthropological images employ slight imprecision that denotes the subjectivity of both photography and anthropology, indicating that a photographer-observer was present in recording the image. Soft focus is thus a form of transparency, of realism, of full disclosure, and a rejection of the fictitious omniscience of traditional sharp focus ethnographic photography. The most ambitious ethnographic photography publication of the 20th century was Edward Curtis's The North American Indian. Royal Jordan Roll, however, was more modestly scaled, but Ullman's images appear as at least the equal of Peterkin's text, identified as studies, which suggests their autonomy as fine art images. At the White School, pupils learn to simplify compositions, flatten space, and soften outlines in pictorialist style, but also to transpose the characteristics of fine art photography to modern design, advertising, and even to ethnographic photography. In this paper, I'm arguing that rather than undermining the objectivity of the material presented, <coughs> Ullman's soft focus images and elegant photogravure printing actually reinforced documentary accuracy 
by foregrounding the encounter of the photographer and subject, as well as proclaiming the equality of image to text within the book and establishing the images and thus their subjects as valuable in economic, aesthetic, and human terms. These gravures don't offer the wealth of detail worth the proverbial thousand words, but they do present themselves as fine art, even as they do the work of description. This portrait of Ullman and Peterkin captures their friendship at the time when they decided to collaborate on a book. A native South Carolinian, Peterkin lived on her husband's family's plantation, Lang Syne, where most of the workers were descendants of the plantation's original slave population. She immersed herself in their stories, which she came to appropriate and transcribe in her fiction. Writing the lives of African Americans was seen by white Southerners as transgressive, but met with endorsement by the NAACP and a Pulitzer Prize. Though preoccupied with tradition, Peterkin lived a 20th century life. This house was built in 1915 after the original plantation house was destroyed by fire. Rather than languidly pacing the veranda of an antebellum mansion, she presided over an up-to-date, relatively modest home helped introduce agricultural innovations, was a sophisticated modern writer, and cultivated acquaintance with her employees rather than select white society. In 1922, she wrote to H.L. Mencken that, these black friends of mine live more in one Saturday night than I do in five years. I envy them and I guess I cannot be them, so I seek satisfaction in trying to record them. But over time, an essentially conservative agrarian sensibility emerged in Peterkin's work. So the first line of text for Roll Jordan Roll read, some of the charm that made the life of the Old South glamorous still lingers so that there undisturbed by the restless I'm sorry, I'm skipping, that made the old South glamorous still lingers on a few plantations that have been so cut off from the outside world by rivers, wide swamps, and lack of roads that they are still undisturbed by the restless present. Her outlook in this book is a dense stew of empathy, privilege, racism, fantasy wish fulfillment, documentation, and nostalgia. Peterkin provided Ullman with entree to the world of Lang Syne, but once Ullman set up her camera, she invited her subjects to present themselves as they wished, resulting in images often at odds with Peterkin's text. Born to an affluent secular New York Jewish family, Ullman was a participant in the ethical culture movement. Divorced early from her physician husband and childless, she lived on Park Avenue and was free to dedicate herself to photography. Historian Elizabeth Robeson described Ullman as internalizing the hierarchical conceptions of middle class separateness from the primitive working classes 
and concretizing her social distance from her subjects by directing their gaze off camera. But that analysis entirely fails to describe the photographs Ullman actually made. Here, both Ullman and Peter can themselves gaze off camera. And Robeson seems to conflate Peterkin's increasingly regressive views with Ullman's. Distinctions between the collaborators' views were apparent to contemporary critics, however. Martha Gruning, writing in the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, in 1934, praised the sensitivity of Ullman's images while noting that too often the complacency of the white big house owner gets the better of Mrs. Peterkin's native gifts of clear-sightedness and irony. Peterkin's writing is powered by discovery of herself in the experiences of the people she writes about, while Ullman's subject is the selves her sitters chose to present to her camera. Both women were acutely aware of lived experience beyond their own, but this interested Ullman in relation to other people, while Peterkin vicariously sought in it fulfillments she was herself denied. While photogravure is a reproduction that operates as an original, Peterkin's dialect narratives are appropriation of the experience of others that become original texts of her own authorship. Her use of the Gullah dialect is complicated by the fact that it was her own first language, as it was for many Carolina whites, raised primarily by Gullah-speaking blacks. Ullman's observation and Peterkin's ventriloquism, Peterkin's embeddedness in the place whose culture she chronicled, and Ullman's status as an outsider become entwined in this collaboration, providing both difficulty and opportunity for each party. Ullman signaled the presence of a photographer framing the images, but within that frame, her subjects presented themselves as they wished, while Peterkin's narration of the stories of her subjects made those choices for them, and sometimes at their expense. The New York Times aptly described Roll Jordan Roll as a collaboration in two mediums. The limited edition's handsome plain binding and cover embossed with the profile of a woman resemble Ullman's previous books. Although the trade edition's cover includes a detail of a photograph, its look and feel is more nearly that of an illustrated book than of an artist's book. Ullman's photographs take center stage in the limited edition, while in the trade edition, the images play a supporting role as illustrations to Peterkin's text. These are the title pages of both editions. A review of the trade edition of the book in The Nation complained that Many of the pictures are so soft and vague as to be mere black blobs, as you see here. 
the offset reproduction's inferiority to the limited edition's photogravure plates makes it clear how far from neutral containers these editions are. In the limited edition, the choice of photogravure for the images required that they be printed on thick paper with defining plate marks evident on both recto and verso of the sheets, while in the trade edition, images were often printed back to back on the same page. The high production values of Roll Jordan Roll's limited edition emulate those of Ullman's previous volumes, which were both documentary studies and luxurious commodities. Ullman pursued her subjects, whether bourgeois professionals or rural working folk in both black and white, in series. What's most notable is how closely her images of medical school professors, magazine editors, and African-American agricultural workers resemble each other. Her formal strategies vary little, and she offered subjects opportunities to project themselves into the pictorial space of the portraits she was making. Ullman told an interviewer an anecdote about one of her sitters who adopted a very formal pose. When Ullman invited her to move around and talk, she demurred, saying, I will not talk and I will not move. Something tells me to be quiet. This is God's work. The title, Roll Jordan Roll, announces that spirituality is its central theme, a claim fulfilled more by Ullman's photographs than Peterkin's narrative. Ullman's photographs of a foot-washing ceremony and of baptisms are posed in the sense of subjects pausing for the sake of the camera rather than being imposed upon by the photographer. Excuse me. In Ullman's images, religion and work are both pillars of identity and community, and the spiritual is coterminous with the social. Arduous stoop labor is clearly described making it evident that agriculture is work. While Peterkin's text about cotton leapt from the workers' hours in the field to emphasize their pleasure in spending the money they so earned. Peterkin used the asparagus harvest as a jumping-off point for a tale of love and betrayal, but Ullman faithfully observes grading, packaging, and marketing of this recently introduced cash crop, which represented a departure from Lang Syne Plantation's traditional economy. Here we see the toughness and accuracy of Ullman's rendering of race and power relations. Despite the soft radiance of the gravures, they're unsparing in depicting the conditions of working life for African Americans in the Deep South, and in no way correspond to Peterkin's complicated ambivalence about the interdependence of blacks and whites at Lang Syne. 
Grooming quoted Peterkin's painfully inaccurate description of the convicts singing cheerfully and then responded, but the photographs taken by Doris Ullman, which illustrate this chapter, do not show singing or cheerful men. There is an almost grotesque discrepancy, in fact, between Mrs. Peterkin's babblings on the subject of the cheerful Negro songsters and the bitter sense of injustice plainly felt by the morose men in these grim photographs. Shamun Zamir has argued that Edward Curtis's Native American sitters participated in what he calls a form of indirect self-portraiture, a description we can apply as well to Ullman's work. Her collaboration with her subjects reflects the precepts of the Ethical Culture Society. Its founder, Felix Adler, wrote that if we could see holiness, beauty concealed within our fellow beings, we should be drawn towards them by the most powerful attraction, willingly living in their life and permitting them to live in ours. We should then love all men, for we should see in all what is unspeakably lovable. Drawn to her fellow beings with that powerful attraction, Ullman's portraiture avoids generalization and recognizes the claims of the present moment on her subjects, rather than insisting upon timeless traditionalism. She was as willing to portray the Langsine workforce in their most up-to-date Sunday finery as in their picturesque old-style work clothes, according to their convenience, circumstance, or wishes. This paper argued that by reading the whole book, it's possible to make sense of the apparent contradictions surrounding Roll Jordan Roll as a work of fine art ethnography and to understand it in relation to its author's very different responses to their subjects. Reading the text and the subject matter of the images is easy. Reading the form and style and materiality of the images is harder, particularly given conventions and assumptions entrenched in the history of documentary photography about what constitutes truth, ethical practice, effective communication. But the thickness of the pages on which the luminous gravures are printed, the soft focus of the images, the elegantly understated book design, indeed the materiality of the volume itself, are rhetorical strategies calling attention to the presence of the photographer in partnership with her subjects, and so are central elements in the story. Thank you. I'd like to first begin by thanking the Bibliographical Society of America and the Medieval Academy of America for their financial support of my attendance and pres presentation today. 
One late medieval English recipe required that heron, a bird served exclusively to the highest nobility, be placed on a spit, larded, roasted, and carved. The heron was to be served with a sauce made from the bird's innards, seasoned with ginger and gallangale, and tinted with the bird's blood or darkly toasted bread crust. A bountiful feast might feature this heron served alongside other fantastic birds found in surrounding recipes, swan, peacock, crane, and lark. One would expect to see such an elite recipe in a cookbook for the royal kitchen, considering that, a di that the dish would rarely be prepared outside of that space. However, this recipe is found in a copy of Utilis Coconario in London British Library, manuscript Sloan 468, alongside a collection of medical recipes purportedly from Hippocrates, Galen, and others, another collection of medical recipes in Latin and English, a poem directed to the man that well of Lechcraft there. This manuscript lacks any decoration or ornamentation. It was written in black ink with minimal rubrication. So why would a cookbook containing luxury dishes be located in a utilitarian medical manuscript? During the 15th century, cookeries were being used in many ways. The genre was gradually developing into one that appealed to a variety of readers. While some people used cookeries as aid memoir or instructional texts, another group collected cookbooks for an entirely different purpose. An emerging group of professionals in late medieval Europe used these cookeries as tools for social education and ultimately class aspiration. These cookbooks are located in manuscripts created for and owned by medieval professionals. I posit that cookeries contained in professional manuscripts were primarily used as aspirational texts. Professionals, such as medical practitioners, could learn about the foods they should aspire to eat as members of a rising social group. While occasional recipes may have been useful in their household kitchens or medical practices, the context of these cookeries points to a very different use. A combination of codicological features and textual contents of the manuscripts indicates that professionals use cookeries for social aspiration and education. These reader readers use these texts to familiarize themselves with what had been served to their social superiors, the nobility, as a way to fit in and excel in a new social environment. Recipes were a vehicle for shaping a group's new identity. 15th century English medical practitioners' manuscripts account for the largest body of these texts and are the focus of my attention today. Twelve manuscripts housed at the British Library can be definitively traced to ownership by medical professionals such as physicians and surgeons. This group of manuscripts constitutes nearly 20% of 15th century English manuscripts containing cookeries. The Tolt manuscripts share three major characteristics which indicate that practitioners not only collected and read cookeries, but also used the text for, for a purpose other than medical practice or cooking instruction. First, the cookeries are contained in manuscripts that share similar or identical textual and codicological characteristics. And this degree of similarity is important. It suggests that practitioners sought out and used a shared body of text. These common texts inform the ways in which professionals conducted business and carried out daily activities. Furthermore, many of the codicological similarities indicate that scribes adhere to certain copying conventions while producing manuscripts for medical practitioners. Second, the cookeries lack the amount of marginalia present in other texts bound in the same manuscripts. Practitioners consistently left notes in the margins of almost all other texts bound with the cookeries. 
Because the cookeries remained as nearly clean copies in otherwise heavily annotated manuscripts, practitioners must have read and used the cookery text differently from the other texts in the same volume. And third, many cookery recipes contain ingredients which would be difficult or impossible for non-nobles to obtain, rendering the cookeries useless as practical guides for the kitchens of many professional households. This combination of factors creates a compelling case for the late medieval circulation of cookeries as aspirational texts, rather than texts based in kitchen use. So let's begin with the shared codicological characteristics among the 12 British Library manuscripts, which indicate that scribes adhered to certain copying conventions while producing manuscripts for medical practitioners. Physicians and surgeons may have circulated their texts within their small social circle. Out of the 12 manuscripts, two were copied in part by their owners who were likely influenced by the text, mise-en-page, illustrations, and other features they witnessed in the manuscripts used by their peers. The 12 manuscripts date from the late 14th century through the mid-15th century. Portions of four manuscripts date from the late 14th century, and these four early manuscripts share one characteristic. All or part were composed on parchment rather than paper. The later manuscripts are made mainly of paper and an examination of this paper revealed that three manuscripts contained related watermarks. While I was unable to discern the watermarks in two manuscripts, three of the paper manuscripts include watermarks of bulls and bulls heads. Harley 1735, Royal 18A6, and Sloan 7 include watermarks of bulls heads, while Sloan 7 also includes a watermark of an entire bull. Harley 1735 has um, has a watermark identified by Haywood, a bull's head with a St. Andrew's cross. Paper used in England with bull watermarks was most often produced in southern France or northern Italy, especially Piedmont. Several manuscripts, all containing medical writings, were copied on related papers. While more intensive study is necessary, it is possible that a publisher bought a quantity of paper from the same makers and produced some of the manuscripts in the group of 12 with cookeries, in a manner that Linda Voigt has proposed for another group of English medical manuscripts. All 12 manuscripts are small, portable, and lightweight codices. Their most obvious features, size, and mise-en-page are also comparable. The average manuscript measures approximately 130 millimeters by 190 millimeters. There are only a couple outliers, and the mise-en-page is also consistent. All 12 cookeries contain a single writing block. Most of these blocks contain between 21 and 28 lines, some clearly ruled and some composed in freehand. The manuscripts contain a variety of scripts, though a majority of the texts are written in secretary or anglicana hands. A few scribes employed anglicana formata. These similarities suggest that the scribes who copied these manuscripts adhered to a set of production conventions, imposed either by a publisher or by practitioners requesting texts similar to those of their colleagues. The 12 manuscripts share decorative elements. Textual decoration is limited to red or blue initials and rubrication in most of the manuscripts. Arundel 334, however, is the outlier, containing minimal gold leaf decoration, including in the cookbook. Several manuscripts also include illustrations, even in the cookery texts. One can find animals and cooking tools depicted in two cookeries, as well as astrological diagrams, as, is, as in the Zodiac Man, images for surgery and diagnosis, and anatomical drawings in three other manuscripts. Three manuscripts also contain colored images of urine flasks for urinalysis instruction. And these illustrated manuscripts in particular would not be used in a kitchen. 
Decoration involving gold leaf or colorful inks was too precious for such a potentially destructive setting. The original owners of these 12 manuscripts may have carefully planned the compilation of texts. Several manuscripts, however, appear particularly purposeful. Sloan 7, Sloan 442, and Sloan 468 appear to have been created as unified codices rather than pieced together from pre-existing gatherings. In each of these manuscripts, the scripts, mise en page, and decoration are consistent among all texts. Several texts appeared in multiple manuscripts in this group of 12. While some of these repetitions are of a certain type of text, others are of the same text, such as a poem, That Man, That Wool of Lechcraft Lair. This textual overlap is indicative of a common body of knowledge valued by medical practitioners of the 15th century. Five manuscripts include at least one general herbal on a variety of plants. Three manuscripts include herbals specifically about rosemary. Seven include urinalysis texts with several exhibiting illustrated diagrams. Another six contain bloodletting texts. Four manuscripts contain two on two important topics, wine production and plant grafting, especially grapes. Two of these texts were well-known tomes on the topic of grafting by Nicholas Ballard and Godfrey's adaptation and translation of a 4th century work by Palladius. These texts are regularly found paired together in manuscripts, as these are in Cotton Julius D7 and Sloan 7. The aforementioned poem, beginning that man that will of Lechcraft Lair, is paired with a collection of books or excerpts from books by Galen and Hippocrates in three of the 12 manuscripts. This comparison of features and texts tells us that the group of 15th century medical practitioners owned similar manuscripts of approximately the same size, of similar materials, written with the same scripts, and containing many of the same decorations, illustrations, and texts. Not only were medical practitioners circulating the same texts and ideas, but were doing so with manuscripts which physically presented that literature in the same way. This level of similarity between texts demonstrates that these texts were being transmitted within, uh, together within a small professional circle. Certain medical and non-medical topics and texts were considered part of a common body of knowledge among English medical practitioners. And this shared corpus, which included medical, agricultural, and culinary knowledge, indicated that certain activities and subjects were cultivated among professionals. Medical manuscripts containing cookeries present evidence of how these texts were used in their marginalia. While cookeries bound independently or non-professional miscellanies contain abundant marginalia, including emendations to the recipes, cookeries found in manuscripts intended for professionals contain minimal markings. In this regard, the cookery texts stand apart from the surrounding <coughs> professional texts, which usually include notes, references, and other marginalia. This imbalance indicates that cookeries contained in professional manuscripts were not generally used as guides for cooking. Instead, their purpose was to be read and used outside of the kitchen. So just to show one example, Harley 2378 contains extensive marginalia, but only outside of its cookery. The cookeries represented in the rest of the manuscripts consistently contain scant evidence of kitchen use. This is not due to lack of space, the cookery texts fill approximately 45 to 60% of the folios, leaving plenty of blank space for marginal notes. Yet readers did not fill these margins with additional text. Continuing the, considering the copious notes in the non-culinary margins, the readers would have marked the cookeries with similar commentary or symbols they had used, and um, they had used the text in the kitchen. The recipe texts provide the final piece of the puzzle. 
Professionals could read recipes from certain cookbooks and be able to identify culinary trends, ingredients, and menus that were associated with a noble and royal class. <clears throat> this should not seem unfamiliar to a modern audience. With today's boom in culinary literature, hordes of people purchase cookbooks they never use. And cookbooks from today's finest restaurant kitchens, an easy comparator to medieval royal kitchens, contain notoriously expensive and demanding dishes far beyond the skill of home cooks. Yet the images, flavors, and processes keep consumers engaged in modern food culture and trends, whether or not they can reproduce restaurant dishes. Shared knowledge of these foodstuffs creates a sense of community among interested readers. Similarly, the non-noble professional audience owning these manuscripts would not necessarily have cooked the recipes. Rather, these cookeries would have familiarized readers with the types of books appropriate for the social station to which they aspired. Many medieval cookery recipes found in medical manuscripts contain ingredients which were difficult or impossible for non-nobles to acquire. Dishes featuring peacocks, cranes, and herons are contained in a collection known as Utilis Coquinario, found in two of the manuscripts. These birds were wholly out of reach for bourgeois consumers and difficult for all but the highest-ranked nobles to obtain. Similarly, three manuscripts contain the form of curry, a cookery originating in King Richard II's kitchen. In this collection, recipes again feature animals such as turbot, lamprey, porpoise, swan, peacock, crane, and heron. Professionals would not have had access to most of these ingredients for meals within their households. However, if they dined at the court of a royal or noble patient, or began to associate with local nobles, whom they would have wanted to be familiar with these foods and how they were prepared in order to cultivate the manners and courtesy to properly consume their dinner. In rare instances, the wealthiest physicians and surgeons might be able to earn the substantial assets required to afford ingredients with an otherwise noble status, and if so, they were already familiar with the finest products to seek and the possible preparations that awaited them. Professionals in the 15th century, situated between the middle class and the nobility, aspired to the higher class. They emulated noble habits when possible. Certain luxury foods were strictly reserved for the nobility. Consumption of such victuals identified one as a member of that group. Professionals strove to consume such luxury items, though in reality such consumption could happen only at noble tables. In preparation of such consumption at the homes of noble patients and patrons, medical practitioners read cookeries which described the luxury foodstuffs and their common preparations. This combination of clues suggests that medical professionals use cookeries for the specific purpose of familiarizing themselves with the types of foods appropriate to their aspirations. We know that practitioners owned these manuscripts and these cookeries were circulated with other texts regularly read by practitioners. Yet features such as manuscript decoration and the lack of marginalia in the cookeries indicates that they were not used in a kitchen setting. The recipe ingredients further suggest that few physicians or surgeons could have actually produced the final dishes. And together, this evidence leads to the conclusion that practitioners employed these texts to learn about higher status foods and dishes, even if they could not yet afford them for their own households. Moreover, cookeries appear in manuscripts for other professional groups, including lawyers, and are also extant in French and Italian professional manuscripts. While physicians and lawyers, as well as the growing professional class, assuredly had individual reasons for knowing about the noble food and food culture of their time, the inclusion of these texts within and beside other field-specific texts and instructional literature points to a role for these cookeries in helping the professionals to learn about the banquets that awaited them as they were welcomed into increasingly opulent dining rooms. Thank you.
Good, mor <coughs> Good morning. Let me say what a delight it is to be here. During the Third Reich, stereoscopic photography, which had its heyday in the 19th century, was transformed by the regime into a tool of propaganda by creating a new format, the stereoscopic photo album. The majority of these were produced by Heinrich Hoffmann, Hitler's personal photographer, and the subtext ranged from the armed forces and the powerhouses of Nazi industry to cities of geopolitical importance to the Reich. Small-scale stereo views and folding stereoscopes were integrated into books, stored in pockets hollowed out of half-inch thick front and rear covers. Three paradoxes characterized these stereoscopic books, the process of viewing stereoscopic photographs, the purely notion of a stereoscopic photo book, and the disruption between image and caption. This paper examines the unique matrix of this innovative and little-studied book form. Stereoscopic photography offers a distinctive viewing process within visual media, for it utilizes cameras in which two lenses are positioned at approximately the human interocular distance to record dual images. The goal is to produce a single image that is characterized by receding planes when viewed through a stereoscope, often providing an intense sensation of depth. Most importantly, the stereoscopic experience is different from other visual experiences, for it is quintessentially individualistic. True simultaneous discourse between viewers is precluded on account that a stereo view never merely depicts a subject like a painting, film, or non-stereoscopic photograph. Rather, the viewer must synthesize anew each time using the stereoscope. The process, therefore, paradoxically undermined an opportunity that visual propaganda usually offers, mutual affirmation of the message by simultaneous group viewing and discussion. The second paradox was the design of these stereoscopic photo books, where it challenged the notion of things being presented in a specific, predetermined sequence, aspects that you should characterize books, even digital ones. In a conventional photo book with regard to choice, one can view the images in any order, but the pairing of images left page, right page, is still predetermined. This example from 1938 by Heinrich Hoffmann demonstrates such pairing. One can tear out the pages of a conventional photo book, but there remains one final aspect of control, the pairing of images on the recto verso sides of a page. In contrast, the collection of loose individual stereo views contained within the covers of the books in question comprise a format that encouraged individual freedom of choice, paradoxically undermining one of propaganda's major tenets, control. The third paradox was breaking the linkage between image and caption. Because the captions were printed on the reverse side of the dual images, the reader slash viewer was prevented from experiencing the potential synergy between image and caption when viewed simultaneously, which often can reinforce a powerful message. Greater Germany's Rebirth, also from 1938, is an example of the stereoscopic photo books produced by Hoffmann. These were ambiguous works of propaganda. Control was compromised, yet the format offered a potentially more immersive visual experience than conventional photo books due to the intense sensation of depth that stereoscopic photography offered. The ambiguity ultimately defined these distinct containers of politically charged information. Greater Germany's Rebirth not only contains 120 individual stereo views, but also 79 pages of text that are interspersed or interrupted three times to showcase flat photographs. Each interruption consists of two pages of black paper stock upon which photos only on the rectos were pasted. Greater Germany's Rebirth also lacked a crucial element, a photographic cover. 
Due to the difficulty of producing a just jacket for such thick and unwieldy volumes, it immediately presented the reader a dilemma. Pull out the stereoscope and start viewing the 120 stereo views, or delve into the text and paste it flat photos. This is the first moment of the second paradox mentioned earlier, challenging the notion of things being presented in a specific predetermined sequence. At this instant, Hoffman relinquished some control over the reader slash viewer and therefore possibly undermined the propagandistic thrust of the book. The stereograph Travel of the Führer to Salzburg is taken from the vantage point of Hitler's Mercedes-Benz along a country road leading to the city. If we view just one of the dual images, the details begin to emerge. His motorcade has passed with the lead car in front visible in the midground of the photo. A line of white-shirted Hitler youths lining both sides of the road lead the viewer's gaze toward the background, with the youth closest to the car raising his right arm in the fascist salute. However, it is the woman standing in front of the youth that cements the specialness of the image, for her adoring glance is directed toward us. The implication, therefore, is that we are next to Hitler, and given the vantage by Hoffman who photographed this moment, we are most likely standing next to Hitler. The image is extraordinary, not for only what is seen, but also for what is reflected in the photo, also what is reflected, clouds in the, lustrous, in the car's lustrous paint, and the short mass holding the Nazi standard in the convex contour of the right headlamp. To the left of this latter reflection are the most intriguing elements, two dot-like, two dot-like reflections that are the heads of Hitler and Hoffmann. An intimate visual triangulation between Hitler, Hoffmann, and the viewer results, uh, results enhanced by the receding planes of depth when seen through a stereoscope. It is a distinctive type of viewing experience, one whose visually immersive nature offers an individualistic, albeit intense, encounter. One point of entree toward understanding this experience is the notion of intertextuality, as discussed in an essay by Susan Stanford Friedman. Friedman muses about an intertextual grid composed of horizontal and vertical axes, and I'm going to quote her at length. This horizontal axis represents the text as a transaction between writer and reader. The vertical axis is a line starting with the text and moving down into the exterior text or context of the text in question. Both axes represent a movement through space and time. The one horizontal referring to the movement of the characters within their fictional world, the other vertical referring to the emotions of the writer and the reader in relation to each other and to the text intertexts. Where the horizontal moment exists or movement exists in finite form within the bounded world of the text, the vertical movement exists fluidly as a writing inscribed by the writer and then reconstituted by the reader." End quote. So how would a horizontal access occur not in a text but rather in a photograph? There is no movement of the characters in, in terms of plot, for this is a moment frozen in time, yet a complex, ever-changing narrative exists. It begins with a photographic equivalent of what Friedman termed the linearity of the language, the sequence of the sentence that moves horizontally in alphabetic strips, end quote. However, instead of reading a text, the viewer gazes from subject to subject in the image, having the freedom to create an endless variety of sequences and therefore narratives. The plane upon which this occurs is called the lexis of flat photography, and similar to, how a textual and, and similar to a textual horizontal axis, Quote, exists in finite form within the bounded world of the text, end quote. That of the photo, flat photo, is, of course, constrained by the edges of the image. However, in a stereoscopic photo, the viewer's eyes don't merely move from subject to subject, they also move from plane to plane. 
this exponentially increases the number of narratives possible, for we now are dealing not only with subject-to-subject eye movements, but also plane-to-plane. A plethora of axes between the viewer's eyes and the subjects and planes emerges, establishing grid composed not only of horizontal and vertical axes, but also diagonal axes. As a viewer's gaze transitions from a subject that is on a different plane of depth, a diagonal axis is created. An example of this would be going from the policeman at the far left to the right headlight of Hitler's car. At first glance, this notion of a multi-layer grid of horizontal, vertical, and diagonal axes may appear to be simplistic in its literal as opposed to metaphorical nature. However, it is different than, for instance, viewing a multi-layered laser-cut paper greeting card. For the planes of depth in a stereoscopic image are not real. They are an illusion, a virtual reality of sorts. This aligns with the virtual nature of the intertextual text, and Susan Friedman's words about it almost describe the stereoscopic viewing experience. Now I'm going to quote her again. The vertical axis of narrative involves reading down into the text as we move across it. The vertical does not exist at the level of sequential plot, but rather resides within, dependent upon the horizontal narratives as the function that adds multiple resonances to the character's movement through space and time." The stereoscopic viewing experience not only contains the photographic equivalent of associated connections, that is, other images with which the viewer is familiar, but also this literal yet virtual collection of vertical and diagonal axes. Now, I'm using the word literal in the sense of existing as opposed to metaphorical. The impression of great depth seems real, but is not, for a two-dimensional stereograph remains two-dimensional. Yet there exists an image of intense three-dimensionality in the present moment. It is not something that the viewer has imagined or hallucinated. There is something real and of the moment, yet does not exist in three-dimensional reality. The question is how to describe or categorize this netherworld. And in an essay, Pauline Stakelin offered a possible answer to this question. She writes, quote, The biological fact of binocular vision is what makes the stereoscope possible. What the viewer sees is an image that does not exist outside reality, but rather internally, end quote. This internal existence is the quintessence of the stereoscopic viewing experience. It is real but it does not exist within the realm of physical reality. Yet still unanswered is where the experience does reside. Jean-Claire probably summarized it best, noting that the synthesis emerging of stereoscopy's dual images, quote, will take place in a space that is purely and really visual, end quote. This space is analogous to the intertextual grid that Susan Friedman wrote about but in a sense fulfills Friedman's description of the axes to an even greater extent than any text could on account of the visual intensity of the three-dimensionality and the horizontal, vertical, and diagonal axes that are present. At this point, it bears repeating that the stereograph in question, Hitler on his way to Salzburg, is not some isolated stereograph picked up at a flea market, but rather is part of a set that was placed inside the covers of a book. Moreover, an unlimited array of permutations regarding where the reader placed the stereographs resulted between two pages of text, adjacent to pasted photos, rotated or turned over from the original orientation. This last option carries a subversive context to the act, given the propagandistic raison d'etre of the Third Reich stereoscopic photo books, further undermining their intent. In this example, a stereograph has been turned upside down and placed over a block quotation taken from one of Hitler's speeches, 
in another of Hoffman's books, obscuring most of it and implying a refutation or dismissal of the words and possibly of the man. In the end, Heinrich Hoffman's stereoscopic photo books of the Third Reich were complex, multi-layered, and multifaceted products. They revived an old-fashioned and out-of-style media and presenting it in a new format. The man responsible for minutely controlling public images of Hitler produced a series of books that were ostensibly propagandistic, as a partial list of subjects indicates cities geopolitically important to the Reich, the armed forces in action throughout World War II, the regime's models of advanced industry, and even the Paris International Exhibition of 1937, at which the glories of the German pavilion designed by Albert Speer were documented. Yet these books challenged the notion of a book, and in doing so presented a fractured, yet visually immersive experience to the reader slash viewer. The result was a medium whose distinctiveness remains striking today. Thank you. In late 16th century England, eager to fill his commonplace book with instructive epigrams and fruitful phrases, the tragedies of Lucius and Aeneas Seneca were ripe for the picking. From Hercules Furens to Hercules Oteus, the ten tragedies were strewn with sententiae that could be extracted from their context, copied into and organized in one's commonplace book, reread for edification, and or repurposed in rhetorical exercises. Some publishers of Latin editions of Seneca's tragedies facilitated this use of the author's works by highlighting weighty maxims with variations in font and type. Indeed, Anne Moss finds that this 1506 edition of Seneca's tragedies published in Florence was the first printed book to visibly demarcate sentences for commonplacing. As you can see here, the printer, um, Filippo de Giunta, used all caps for phrases like, um, I'll give you the English translation here, riches do not make a king, or he who is established in one place sees everything beneath him. So by exerting sententiae from ancient authors' tragedies, readers were not only following the instructions of humanist authorities such as Erasmus, John Calvin, and Juan Luis Vives, but also adopting study habits espoused by Aristotle, Cicero, Quintilian, and even Seneca himself. Using a commonplace metaphor for describing the process of extracting aphorisms from texts, Seneca tells us that we should imitate the bees, as they say, which wander, um, which, uh, wander and pluck suitable flowers to make honey then arrange and assort in their cells all that they have brought in through the honeycomb. This approach to reading literary text that privileges the sentence, or little blocks of text, is one of the features of commonplace culture, a term coined by Adam Smythe to describe the ideological, pedagogical, and epistemological changes in early modern England that were concomitant with the practice of making and consuming commonplace books. In her monograph, Reframing Authority, Mary Thomas Crane similarly identifies the shift in reading practices in the period as humanists exhorted readers to extract the wholesome nectars from the gardens of the muses. 
Crane reinforces, quote, literary texts were imagined as fields or containers from which fragments of matter could be gathered, not organic wholes identified by their style or voice. Scholars of Renaissance drama track a similar phenomenon occurring among readers of English printed plays. Laura Estel's new and meticulously well-researched study of dramatic manuscripts suggests that early readers approach printed drama, quote, not as complete artistic units, but as compendia of smaller pieces to be taken apart, as repositories of phrases and ideas to be excerpted and appropriated. It seems that even members of the English book trade were invested in packaging plays as curated collections of maxims to appeal to readers, an argument set forth by Zachary Lesser and Peter Stallygrass in their seminal essay on Q1 Hamlet. They show that the stationer, Nicholas Ling, the publisher of Q1 Hamlet, inserted quotation marks next to sententious lines, signaling to readers that these words were fit for inclusion in one's commonplace book. This scholarship, all founded on careful archival and book historical research, has taught us much of what we know about early modern English men and women, how they read, how they conceptualized tragedies and plays, and specifically those of Seneca's plays as books. But I wonder if too much emphasis on the repositorial quality of early modern texts has the potential to obscure another textual impulse that to engage with books, even collections of plays, as whole and integrated works. I have tracked this impulse across a variety of printed drama collections, especially in the activities of bookmaking agents who used paratextual and bibliographical devices to urge readers to approach drama collections, even Seneca's tragedies, as whole books of drama. This is the title page to the 1581 edition of Seneca's Ten Tragedies. This volume was the first English collection of Seneca's tragedies and the first multi-play dramatic collection in the vernacular printed on English soil. Considering that Seneca's works were known for their rich sententiae, frequently excerpted and copied into readers' commonplace books and often uh, cited in snippets by contemporary writers, it seems reasonable for us to expect that the volume would cater to readers engaged in commonplacing practices. Nevertheless, this was not the direction that the makers of the Ten Tragedies took with the sententious Seneca. Printed by the London stationer Thomas Marsh and edited by the poet, translator, and Church of, clergyman, um, Church of England clergyman Thomas Newton, the Ten Tragedies explicitly warns readers against the perils of selective reading and the dangers of rummaging through texts without attention to character and narrative. This 1581 edition invites us to consider what is a whole book within commonplace culture and calls attention to the counter-narratives that emerge from the agents involved in the processes of making books as I argue pedagogical and commercial products in the English book trade. Now, bibliographically, the Ten Tragedies was presented to readers as a whole book. It had, as you can see, a uniform title page. It was printed with continuous signatures. It had a table of contents and also a single dedicatory epistle that introduced the whole 10-play translation as a single project. Seven of the translators had appeared in earlier printed volumes from 1559 to 1565, um, four different translators. In 1581, Newton, with the assistance of Marsh, acquired these seven texts 
and join them with two unpublished translations plus Newton's own translation of Thebaeus. Hence, while the Ten Tragedies was not uniform in style, the volume was a single printed edition and complete with all ten tragedies in English. And what's interesting about Seneca's tragedies is that they're numbered, um, they're ordinately numbered. So there's the first tragedy, the second tragedy, the second tragedy, and they are numbered in both this English edition as well as in many of the, most all of the continental editions in Latin. Now Newton's first directives on reading Seneca's tragedies holistically appears in the epistle when the editor addresses the potential critics of the project. Uh, Newton writes that it is by some squeamish Areopagite surmised that the reading of these tragedies being interlarded with many phrases and sentences, literally tending at the first sight, sometimes to the praise of ambition, sometimes to the maintenance of cruelty, now and then to the approbation of incontinency, and here and there to the replication of tyranny, cannot be digested without great danger of infection. So here Newton is calling out his detractors, first deriding them as squeamish, but then also acknowledging that if the tragedies are read literally on the level of the phrase and the sentence, as a commonplacing reader might, Seneca's tragedies may be morally suspect. Some of Seneca's sentences literally did advocate for ambition, cruelty, incontinence, and tyranny. But this kind of critique against classical authors was not unique to Seneca or to the tragedies. Juan Luis Vives, who's the tutor of Princess uh, Mary Tudor, for instance, wrote that whether in Latin or the vernacular, ancient writers often, quote, mixed dangerous gifts, not a few, like as sometimes honey or the sweetest wine is mixed with poison. Erasmus makes a similar point and actually urges readers to fortify their minds by reading the Bible, which will act as an antidote or a remedy if one imbibes any unwholesome teachings from classical works. Immersing oneself in scripture, however, is not Newton's prescription for readers of the edition of the Ten Tragedies. Rather, he encourages that one read the tragedies as whole plays. He avers that if readers mark and consider the circumstances, why, where, and by what manner of persons such sentences are pronounced, they cannot in any equity otherwise choose, but find good cause enough to lead them to a more favorable and mild resolution. So quite simply, a reader of Seneca's Thyestes will find many lines of very unscrupulous advice in the tragedy, such as this one. Let lust triumph. In a wicked house, let whoredom counted be the lightest offense. So those readers who follow Newton's advice will recognize that it's Megara, one of the Furies, who speaks this line, as she commands Tantalus to fill the house of Atreus with cruelty and revenge, and to bake his brother into a pie and make his children eat it. So, and that her words of wisdom on lust and boredom or pretty much any other topic, it's better for the reader to leave these unheeded. Still, it's important to note that Newton expects that readers will consume dangerous ideas like this when reading Seneca, just as one might consume poison mixed with sweetened wine. For Newton, infection is not the consequence of consuming dangerous ideas, but the product of improperly digesting them. To absorb Seneca safely, readers need to read for character and plot. They need to recognize dialogue is integral to characterization, to pay close attention to speech prefixes before lines of dialogue, 
In other, need, other words, they need to read the tragedies as plays. While Megara's lines are written by Seneca himself, they are more importantly mediated through her character and must be interpreted within the dramatic narrative on the page. What Newton calls for here, then, is not just the reading of the lines of each tragedy in context, but also a treatment of the dramatic text that belies its employment, employment in commonplace culture as a repository of extractable parts. Newton's next instruction departs even further from the prescriptions of some fellow humanists interested, invested in commonplacing as a pedagogical tool. The editor argues that to comprehend Seneca's moral teachings, one must not only read each play completely and in context, but also they should read the whole ten-play collection. So he states that it may not at any hand be thought and deemed the direct meaning of Seneca himself whose whole writings, penned with a peerless sublimity and loftiness of style, are so far from countenancing vice that I doubt whether there be any among the catalogue of heathen writers that with more gravity of philosophical sentences, more weightiness of sappy words, or great authority of sound matter, beateth down sin, loose life, dissolute dealings, <clears throat> and unbridled sensuality, or that more sensibly, pithily, invitingly layeth down the guerdon of filthy loss, cloaked dissimulation, and odious treachery, which is the drift whereunto he leveleth the whole issue of each one of his tragedies. So here Newton openly praises the sententious nature of Seneca's writings, the gravity of his philosophical sentences, the weightiness of his sappy words. Yet Newton's simultaneous emphasis on the moral efficacy of the drift of Seneca's whole writings echoes and reinforces the admonitions against selective reading practices expressed earlier in the epistle. Seneca's wisdom is most accessible not on the level of the sentence, phrase, or even single tragedy, but by comprehending the whole issue of each one of his tragedies. Newton's prescriptions here likely derive from concerns that the book's readership would be unfamiliar with Seneca's works on Stoic philosophy. Only a handful of Seneca's prose epistles and treatises had been printed in English before 1581. But for the university educated, Seneca was known as a Christian ethic, as Erasmus called him, who wrote Epistulae Morales, De Ira, De Gravitae Vitae, to teach men to moderate their lives. Those skilled in Latin would likely see the tragedies expounding lessons from these prose works, but a vernacular English reader may not have had this context. Hence, while Newton did not give the readers the entire works of Seneca in English, he did give them the next best thing, the whole collection of the ten tragedies. Because every play reinforced the dangers associated with loose life, the collection was a more effective means of instruction than any single play alone, as the editor avows by reading and interpreting each one of his tragedies, one could access the direct meaning of Seneca himself. For Newton, the collection as a material format was not just a convenient medium to distribute ten titles, but I argue a sophisticated tool to encourage rumination on Seneca's whole dramatic corpus and thereby to inspire its readers to live virtuously. Notably, The Ten Tragedies was only one book among many in which Newton utilized the collected format to promote careful and contextual reading practices. In 1569, Newton translated three of Cicero's treatises, um, Paradoxa, Scipio's Dream, and Old Age, 
which had been printed in two separate octavo volumes. Eight years later, Newton added a fourth Cicero translation to his oeuvre, the treatise on friendship, which was joined with the previous three in a new edition, um, creatively titled, I guess, for several treatises of Cicero. In the preface, Newton explains his motivations for seeing the collection in print. He writes that he never intended for the treatises to be published separately, or as he calls it, piecemeal. He always wanted them to appear polished and brought into order, because the whole works, being by that means fully supplied, should come forth uniform and in one manner of style and order. Newton's words here betray a certain preference on his part for aesthetic and stylistic uniformity among texts in a collection. But his motivations run deeper as he states, I have thought good to take that direct course in the second edition thereof, which seemed best to breed the reader's profit. So similar to his dedicatory epistle in the Ten Tragedies, a collection was a means of edifying readers by offering several of an author's works in one single unified volume. A curious note, and the final point I'll leave you with here today, is that the printer of Cicero's treatises was Thomas Marsh, the same stationer who printed the Ten Tragedies. Newton and Marsh were clearly working together in the 1570s, 1580s, translating, compiling, and setting forth single author texts and collected editions. What the whole book or the whole collection meant to each agent, however, think is, a word, is I think worth exploring, if only briefly. According to Newton's epistles, the whole collection was an effective pedagogical tool, a means for readers to gain access to an author's direct meaning, which would bring the reader moral profit. For Marsh, as a stationer, working in the English book trade, the whole collection was also a commodity designed to bring him financial profit. Marketing a collected edition of a single author's works had to be deemed more profitable than selling that work in parts, or the edition would likely not have been put into print. In the case of Cicero's treatises, Marsh was selling the tracts piecemeal, as Newton described them, before bringing them together under a new title page with a prefatory epistle that argued for their superiority as a unit. Marsh likely saw the opportunity for more sales with the new collected edition of the four treatises, just as he seemingly did for the Ten Tragedies. Whole books were deemed more saleable books, at least for Thomas Marsh. As I think these examples show, very different forms of textual engagement in the period were at play. The desire to extract from the whole, to recontextualize and represent the part was met with impulses to put the parts back into order, to see them integrated, or as Newton says here, fully supplied. Indeed, the increasing number of literary collections in the vernacular, translations of whole works of classical authors, especially those in single-author collections published over the last few decades of the 16th century and into the 17th century, suggests that it was the wholeness of books, or at least some conception of it, that was appealing and informing how readers approached texts and evaluated which to purchase. Of course, I don't think it's hard to imagine that there were multiple forms of textual engagement occurring simultaneously in readers' minds, desires to follow and construct unifying threads across text to trace thematic arcs across whole volumes, while also selecting pieces for extraction and reappropriation in commonplace books. One approach certainly does not preclude the other. It both required different kinds of literacy, and each approach would have varied depending on readers' aims and training, as well as the kind of text, one, say, for academic study versus one for enjoyment. 
I just want to end here then with a question that I've been thinking a lot about. Was there a whole book culture? One intention with commonplace culture in early modern England, might they have mutually supported one another in ways? And I don't have that answer yet. I hope to be continuing the research on here, but I would certainly enjoy discussing that idea further in the Q&A or even after a little coffee. Great, thank you. When Lauren Jennings invited me to respond to this session a year ago, she described its premise as based on an idea drawn from your own work on the new philology. That is the idea that far from being a neutral container, the whole book and its matrix, physical form, fundamental uh, contents, makers, reader, and history of use, are fundamental to the construction of meaning. By exploring the relationship between texts broadly conceived and the books and manuscripts in which they take form as material objects, this panel will seek to highlight in intersections between textual criticism, codicology, paleography, and bibliography. Now, while I was flattered that she had thought of me as a respondent, my first thought was that she'd given me credit for knowing what I was about from the very beginning, which is far from the case. The truth is that what she, saw, what she saw was the result of a very long learning curve. But my situation was not atypical. Most of us in the early 90s were groping for something we knew ought to be possible, but for which the technology had yet to be developed. Given the speed at which, uh, given the speed at which our discipline has been progressing, we tend to forget that what it, what it was like 30 years ago when the potential of the internet was just beginning to emerge as a powerful instrument capable of transforming perception and practice. By way of a historical preface to my response then, let me offer a brief reflection on my own understanding of what we meant by the term the whole book two decades ago. When we first published the whole book Cultural Perspectives on the Medieval Miscellany in 1996, the digital, digital revolution was still in Kuwait. The Kindle and other e-book readers did not exist. Digital repositories of manuscripts and books were just being developed, and their functionality was still primitive. More importantly, while literary and textual scholars intuited their digital thinking, uh, that digital thinking must be very different from analog conventions, our perceptual default mode was still very much analog. Not unnaturally then, what we meant by the term the whole book involved demonstrating the power of the medieval codex to confer what I conceived as manuscript intentionality. I wanted to show that however disparate the individual components might be, the miscellany will yield an overarching principle for aggregating these particular works. Since my perspective was that of literary critical studies, it seemed pertinent to demonstrate how a miscellany could aggregate comparable materials even when the comparands of the individual items were not obvious. In short, my thinking was governed by the premise of textual studies 
expressed by Donald McKenzie in 1999 as form, forms effect meaning. Happily, the four papers represented by our panel demonstrate beautifully just how radically our thinking about the whole book has evolved in the last two decades. To begin with, they illustrate a paradox made possible, or at least easier, by digital textuality, namely the ability to escape the linearity inevitable in a physical manuscript in a physical monograph bounded by covers. Intentionally or not, linear organization imposes hierarchical signification where front-loaded items receive greater weight than those appearing later. That is, that is a natural result of focusing on the semiotics of meaning, so important when dealing with two-dimensional textuality of print. The same work represented in digital form, on the other hand, offers a variety of viewing possibilities precisely because it is not fixed as a movable type on paper, which is not to say that a digitized version is less material than a physical book. It is simply material, materiality of a different, more flexible kind. Paradoxically, digital representation, which permits manipulating textual and structural components in a variety of ways, increases our awareness of material constituents. It is not simply a heightened awareness of material complexity, the quantity of elements, but also their nature or at attributes. Are they, for instance, recessive or dominant? In this way, digital versions make us aware of material complexity, encouraging us to examine more parts, more dimensions. They do so by revealing the movements or reciprocal exchanges between textual or structural components, how they relate to one another, or perhaps fail to do so. This interplay of reciprocal exchange is what I like to call dynamic materiality. Dynamic materiality allows us, in the words of Alan Gary and his colleagues, to look anew at neglected moments in the book's multifaceted history but also helps us to look at those moments with new eyes and to see textual features in terms of their performative and meaning-making functions. Looking anew at neglected moments in a book's history is what each of our four papers does, has done imaginatively and with grace. In, do, in so doing, they also illustrate the enhanced consciousness of text and structure imparted by dynamic materiality. Each paper does so in particular ways, but they all have in common a flair for singling out overworked or recessive elements that make an original contribution to knowledge. In the case of modern books, Ellen Handy on Photogravure and Douglas Clark on the Third Reich's experiment with stereoscopic photo books, they chronicle ingenious efforts by authors to overcome the limitations of the physical work. The medieval and early modern cases discussed by Sarah Kernan and Tara Lyons allow us to witness how much was lost when print technology replaced the parchment or paper codex. Sarah Kernan's perceptive account of the seemingly anomaly of incorporating cooking treatises in medical miscellanies offers a tantalizing glimpse of the flexibility of parchment manuscripts, or paper in this case, Intuitively, Professor Kernan shows that cookbooks, which many scholars would uh, 
perceived as an odd, even misplaced component of medical manuscripts, actually served to connect the codex to a recognizable social context, while also linking its owner to a social network. From this perspective, the cookbooks helped to preserve the medical codices by linking their transmission to a social dynamic. This is how Matthew Kirschenbaum in New Media, uh, New Media and the Forensic Imagination explains the way we should look at text messaging. The point is to address the fundamentally social rather than the solely technical mechanisms of electronic uh, textual transmission and the role of social networks and network culture as active agents of preservation. In her piece, Tara Lyons tells a dual story of how the 16th century craze for mining sentenciae from classical works resulted in what amounts to a dematerializing of those texts. By focusing only on the aphorisms, readers tended not to see the work as a whole. Scholars have inadvertently compounded the problem by focusing on these commonplace books rather than on innovative approaches to editing classical texts in the period that <clears throat> the editors were trying to uh, propose. Professor Lyons counters the prevailing scholarly doxer regarding commonplace books um, by showing that editors of the period went to great lengths to devise collections that demanded to be read as a whole and, as she's shown, also provided uh, a, a certain theoretical basis for doing so. They did so, she shows, by adopting the medieval practice of miscellany compilation to create a sequence of works that demanded to be read as a whole. The fascinating aspect of the two 20th century works discussed by Ellen Handy and Douglas Clark, one American, one German, is that they were produced in the same decade, the 1930s, under very different conditions and experimented with photography as a means of loosening the constraints of print. Each example conceives the work as constructed from parts, like a mechanism, which increases the potential for non-linear, even random, consumption of content. And Professor Clark has showed with the planes of, stereo, uh, stereo, the, of the stereoscope uh, that they even uh, sort of uh, anticipated are what we regularly expect in digital textuality. This is particularly true of stereoscopic books produced for Hitler's propaganda, since these books resemble a toolkit with a separate viewer housed in the cover. Reading and listening to these two papers, I was struck by the impact that the physical objects had upon their digital representations. The digital images convey vividly how the books were designed not simply to be read, but also to be handled. This observation brings to mind another of Matthew Kirschenbaum's observations. Electronic textuality is simply locatable in space, even though we are not accustomed to think of it in physical terms. Um, so I hope you will agree with me that our four papers and uh, the panelists have more than realized Lauren Jennings' aspirations in choosing them. Thank you.
books of trading cards um, from the or those put out by the Nazis as things that people collect and then put together little booklets and use as coffee table books. And I wasn't sure if these stereoscopic photos had the same function. No, they were they were actually quite different because what you what you saw in those other books is a very old German custom. Is this on, by the way? Yes. What you saw in those those other books are a very old German custom dating from the nineteenth century, where you would collect these cards and paste them into books. What I'm showing is a different type of book form with the stereoscopic photographs that you see there. And I will take one note to say that the medium in which I work is the one medium that we cannot show you digitally. You cannot experience a stereoscopic image unless you use a stereoscope. It is the basis of all virtual reality. I can't show you Oculus and have you experience it up here. So it resists digitization, which is, I think, an interesting aspect. Just to follow up on that, um, I have actually experienced one of those Nazi books, the one, the state visit to actually to Florence, Italy, um, which is amazing photographs of, of Hitler and Mussolini. And the shock when you actually see those images 3D is, is quite, it, it's quite chilling, actually, knowing what happened with all of these people. And your comment about how it is not like propaganda traditionally, where many people see the same thing, is really interesting because when you say that it can't be replicated digitally, it's because the space of it is really your brain. Your brain is forming the 3D image. And in a sense, it is the ultimate propaganda because it's the ultimate mind control. It is, absolutely. That's why I term it in a visually immersive medium, because it is individualistic. <coughs> May I just say you're very lucky to have viewed that body, because that is the rarest one. It's at the New York Public Library. I've been trying to find one to own for several years. I have a question for Sir Hernan about the um, how, <coughs> how many of these medieval receipts are you finding in some of these um, these medical manuscripts? Uh, in these particular manuscripts, they ranges from 10 to uh, well over 100 recipes. So um, generally, they're on the larger side. Um, there, there are plenty of recipe collection, culinary recipe collections that are very small and can be as few as five. But for these that are up here, they're, they're generally larger. Hover, hover somewhere around 80 to 100, um, but they can vary either side. Can I just follow up? <coughs> so what, are they mostly recipes for meats and things like that? Are you finding them for things like wines or other, you know, other, or? There's a huge variation. Um, there, um, you can find everything from the meats and the hippocras. Um, you, you can find specific invalid recipes, but those are common outside of medical um, uh, manuscripts as well. Um, so just a whole range of things. Uh, entremets, um, yeah. Thank you. I think we've got time for one or two more questions. Hi, um, I'm sorry if I missed it at the beginning of your presentations for, but for both of the photography books, were the photos taken with the intention of going into a publication? 
That was certainly the case in the book that I was speaking about. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Hoffman managed this stereoscopic enterprise alongside his other enterprises, and he was a multimillionaire. And so every image of Hitler that we are familiar with was not taken by Hoffman, curated by him and approved by Hitler. So there was enormous, very careful intent regarding every single photograph. My question is for Ken. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, uh, as you pointed out, a lot of evidence of uh, early modern leaders engaging with Seneca, extracting Seneca and so on. There is also a huge focus of early modern drama where dentists engage with Seneca. And I wonder whether you consider this as evidence of reading and what kind of readers early modern dentists prove in the context of your discussion. Are they reading co-books or plays, collections of Seneca, or are they engaging with particular segments of so actually, Thomas Nash has um, this great, you, you're probably familiar with it, but it's a, a line about how he's very concerned that English dramatists are going to read Seneca in English, and it's basically that they are going to be eating crumbs off the trencher, which is basically this notion that they're just going to be taking these little pieces and integrating them in, and a few lines later, uh, it's um, um, Shakespeare's Hamlet or, or reference to Hamlet that comes up. So um, I think they're taking motifs from Seneca's tragedies, the revenge ghosts. They're taking some of the aspects of Titus Andronicus, I think is adapting some of the horror and the, um, um, the bloody uh, decapitation and the like, breaking off of body parts. So I don't get the sense that they're using a holistic reading strategy. But what I think is kind of interesting is that they are adapting narrative, plot, and character elements, which in some ways is what Newton was urging people to do, um, to not just quote on the level of the line, but to really think about the narrative structure. And so um, while they're not necessarily taking that humanist, pedagogical, edifying, um, effect from reading Seneca whole, they are reading plays as narrative works. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I'm going to continue these conversations with the panelists over lunch and to give a round of applause for some